the day and welcome to the Cincy Slang and Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? I'm going to give this one my best shot here. Uh, I, I think I, I may have brought home the, the Omnicron from Dallas. May, may have brought it back to so apologize in advance. But, uh, you know, tough loss in Dallas, absolutely. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this was an incredible season. One that I'm so proud of these, these this team, the way, the way it unfolded throughout the season. And that's why I feel confident and comfortable saying it is a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat fan. How say y'all? Indeed it is, Hummer. And I'm glad you started there. I think before we get into the nitty gritty of the college football playoff game, and, and I'll start by saying apologies in advance for being a little bit, a couple of days late on this episode, but the reality is Hummer and I both went down to Dallas for the game, stayed, I personally stayed an extra night, um, and then you come back and you're exhausted, and maybe you're recovering from Omicron, as is the case with Hummer, uh, or al- allegedly the case with Hummer. But here we are, and we have a chance to kind of get into the semantics allegedly. of. I'm going to put the, I'm gonna, the test results kind of going on the internet, right? Putting the test result out there, it's real. <laughs> you don't have to tweet your test results, um, but if you want to, by all means, uh, hashtag content. Do we need to put my date of birth on there, social security number, anything else people would like? Address, maiden, your mother's maiden name, a few other pieces of information could be helpful. Favorite band listening to growing up, uh, first pet's name. What street did you grow up on? Favorite teacher, favorite teacher. All of those things, all of those things. Coming at you. It it does feel like the proper starting point to sort of revisit the, have take the macro perspective and enjoy and revisit the fact that this team went 13 and one. Their one loss coming to Alabama. Justin Williams shared the stat. A few other people shared, shared the stat that the Bearcats in the year 2021, uh, and when you combine last season as well, they, they've lost two games, and those games were to Georgia and they were to Alabama. This is an unprecedented run that we very well may never see again with this football program. I hope we do. It's possible we do. But 40, 43 wing quarterbacks don't grow in trees. You know, guys like Des Ritter don't have careers year in, year out, where you have this four-year relationship with an all-time winning quarterback that also coalesces with your most talented and elite defensive prospect in the history of the program with Sauce Gardner, in addition to the senior leaders like Darian Beavers, Kobe Bryant, MyJ Sanders, so on and so forth. So a lot had to happen for this to, to occur and for this special season to happen. And it does feel like we need to start by saying thank you to the team. Thank you to Luke Fickle. Thank you to Des Ritter. Thank you to all these guys that, that did put forth such a tremendous season, a memorable season, one that we're, you know, we're certainly going to revisit this and think back on it forever. But I do think that, that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this was a tremendous year for the Cincinnati Bearcats football program. I mean, you, you can't say it any better than that. It was absolutely phenomenal. You know, we're going to look back and, you know, some of you guys have the shirt out there, the Des Ritter, you know, running our flag at the end, at the back of the end zone to the crowd at Notre Dame hearing let's go Bearcat chants loudly and clearly through my television set at a bar, you know, couldn't be more proud of what these guys have accomplished this season. And 
you know, in, in same way upset, like it's all right to be upset with losing a game, but you know, this whole season, I'm just hearing Russell Crowe, you know, are you not entertained? You know, this was look, and this season was filled with, with a lot of ups and downs too, even though it was, it was 13 wins. There were some close games and there were some close calls. You, you saw some grittiness, you know, Tulsa, what was it? Five, six, you know, seven straight goal line stands to eight consecutive, to eight, eight it was, consecutive, it was four downs each time inside the five. Like, incredible spanking central Florida up and down the field, just absolute butt whooping central Florida. Loved it. Accomplishing what they never could and probably never will making the college football playoff in a four team format. It's something they could never dream of accomplishing. And here we are. And we did it. You know, we, we'll, we paved the we paved the way for them in the future, all right? We paved the way. They can thank us if they make it in future years in a fourteen playoff format. They can thank us for paving the way and making it happen for them. Exactly. You like how we just flip that, flip that switch, flip that over on them? <laughs> We're just hijacking it. We're hijacking the pave the way. You can't say pave the way anymore. All the paving was done by Luke Fickle's strong, bearish hands. That's that's the paving that was done. I mean, and while we're reminiscing, let's, you've already talked about him, Des Ritter. Did we retire his jersey? I don't even know what the, the, the technical procedure is for football players, but if there's a ring of honor, whatever the case may be, like he's clearly going in it. It needs to go um, up there, right? Like the start of next season, that, that, that needs to happen? I don't know if it's going to happen. Is there, is there a waiting period? I don't know. I, don't, I, I doubt it. I doubt it's very long. I suspect it would happen during a time of year where Des could actually make it back to the stadium and be there for the honoring. Look, there's multiple guys on this team whose numbers and, and legacies as Bearcat football players are going to be honored. You know, Sauce Gardner is going down as the greatest. I think Chad Brendel said it on Twitter, and, and I, I, I frankly kind of agree with the phrasing, the most dominant player in the history of UC football. He was dominant from start to finish. He was someone who never gave up a touchdown. He was someone who teams refused to challenge on a game in game out basis, you know, going so far as to say that's what happened in the college football playoff game. And we'll get into that, but he was an absolutely dominant historical Bearcat. Um, you know, when you consider his, his two, he was a first time all, uh, sorry, he was a first team all American twice. Uh, this year was consensus. Just, just a remarkable career. Another, another player that'll be honored. Uh, Jerome Ford, one of the most explosive Bearcats we've ever seen out of the backfield. Easily the most exciting, dynamic running back we've had since Isaiah Pede. Um, and, and the list goes on because there's going to be multiple more NFL caliber talents entering the draft this coming season. Yeah, I mean, you're and you're also going down and don't want to forget anybody. There's just so many. That's what made this team so special. And I'm really excited to get into the game because it sounds like you and I have vastly different perspectives on 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 the game and with with the you know the talent that we have. I'm also looking forward to next year. I don't think this I don't think this train's over. I know we saw rumors linked to 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 Jim Harbaugh or Harbaugh going to, to the Jim, NFL. Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh. Harbaugh. I don't care what his name is, and but people are basically saying, or someone, Mike Golly Jr., Cincinnati, Iowa State, you 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 scared? Well, Iowa State, you probably should be. I'm not scared with this Cincinnati. I, it was like that was like the quickest look over. I'm like, do you see what we av- avoided this year? Like, do you see the gauntlet that we ran through this year? And you think Michigan's going to be the guy that takes him? Like Michigan, 
That was weird. I was he talking about Michigan or was he inferring that we should also worry about Matt about uh, Ryan Day? I think I was about to say Jim Day. About Ryan Day <laughs> taking the, Day taking Jim the Bears Day. job. Day. I mean, look if 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 that happens, if Ryan Day takes the Bears job, am I a little scared? Yeah, I'm not scared at all though. Like like you just said, we just ran through the damn gauntlet. LSU, Notre Dame. I'm definitely putting. I'm definitely putting my get my binoculars out, and I'm definitely checking the tail. I guess if anything, I guess I'm going over to I-71, and I'm I'm looking for for Luke Fickle's license plate along the highway, making sure I'm not seeing him driving up to Columbus. So here's my here's my take on that. That is one. This is a bit of a hot take. I actually don't think it's just a gut feeling. I don't have sources. This isn't based on. On, on fact or anything like that, but my my gut tells me, and it's it's a reliable gut that has served me well for for thirty four years. I, I my feeling is that Ohio State doesn't isn't going to hire Luke Fickle as a replacement for Ryan Day if he leaves. That is also that's that is a very good point that it's not a given that Luke Fickle is their first choice. Correct. Right. Yeah. That that is actually a really good point. I don't. I don't think it's a guarantee. I I think there's this overall sentiment amongst the fan base, and the fan base doesn't do the hiring, but I know that the fan base has the sentiment of, is he a fit for Ohio State and this culture and this size of program, or or maybe he's better fit at a Cincinnati or or the like. Look, if they think that way, I I encourage it. I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna beg you to take Luke Fickle if your job comes open. I'll just say that it doesn't seem like a it's not a complete guarantee that Luke would automatically end up at Ohio State if that job so in, did, did in so fact end up open. Now, we probably shouldn't spend any more time on it. That's just a, a, a tangent know, the, based the on the a Mike Gola Jr. tweet. Well, while we're talking about Luke Fickle, the Mike Golick situation, like let's look at the positive that come out. We watched Luke Fickle basically whether he turned him down directly or not. We dodged USC. We dodged Oklahoma. We dodged Florida. We dodged LSU. We dodged Notre Dame. Dip, dodge, duck, and dodge. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, if that's if that's not a feeling that's worth something that, you know, we actually saw something rare happen in college football, a college football coach come out, take the team to the end of the season. And look, the first thing that happened, the first thing that happened wasn't Luke Fickle being like, all right, guys, all those rumors were true. I'm out. No, it was Dembrock who we knew the rumors like this wasn't a this wasn't a secret, right? Like I think we posted something on Twitter like two weeks ago, basically that like, you know, his back he was spotted in Louisiana. And then the rumors started flying. I'm like, well, yeah, like he tried to jump ship like every year for the past like five years. He's guy he's, he's been clearly dying to leave. He's been dying yeah. to leave. He was looking at like the offensive coordinator position for Vanderbilt for crying out loud. <laughs> like and Vanderbilt. Hard and pass. They hard passed him. Uh, and I, I'm going to probably get some flack for this, but Dembrock's just, he wasn't my favorite of offensive coordinators for the talent that we had on this roster. The sometimes the way the offense would just stall it. it and to me, I blame that on his, on the ultra conservative play calling. And I know we're going to get into that um, here in a few minutes, but like re- reflecting on this season, like it was just, it was incredible. The talent that we had up and down the roster, the fun we had throughout the season. And I'm just, you're going to look back on this season and just be like, wow, that was a lot of fun. Even this sounds terrible to say, cause I don't like losing. And I definitely don't want to lose to Alabama, but that game was interesting. 
until the fourth quarter. It was, and and that's kind of a good segue of sorts into the game itself. Um, Hamra, did you did you rewatch the game on TV? Because I I actually we both attended in person. We sat in different seats. I got to sat sit with the uh, the lovely Brett Stein from Bearcat Journal. We enjoyed the game together in, in section three forty two. Where did you watch the game from? I don't know two forty six. And did you rewatch the game on TV? Uh, I haven't had the heart to. Yeah, and me neither. And I don't think we should be expected to go back and relive, you know, Alabama know taking the, a sledgehammer to us in terms of, you know, running the ball 47, you know, nearly 50 times in the game, and then our offense not scoring a touchdown. Um, let's let's just have a candid conversation about the game, see where it goes, see where we agree, see where we disagree. Um, you were very, very fired up after the game. Uh, there's, there's a lost, you know, there's a lost space out there. Twitter spaces that was, that was lived out. That's why we do them. That's why we do them. So they disappear into the ether. That's right. If you, if you are fortunate enough to hear it fresh out, out the game in a, in parking lot 11 of the AT&T field, uh, you're lucky, but that was a frustrating game to watch on a number of fronts, you know, starting with the fact that the offense only scored six points. Uh, on the other side of the, the coin, Alabama ran the ball for, I think, close to, just over 300 yards, roughly 47 rushing attempts. I think we've got to start with the offense in this game because you can't get around the fact that the Bearcats went into this game and scored only six points. Their, their six points came off their opening drive of the first half and their opening drive of the second half. So in theory, their two scripted drives did produce points. More more opportunities were left on the board out there. Where when you when you look at that offensive performance, how do you where where do you go with it? Where do you start with with that la- the lack of production from the Bearcats offense? This is probably where I should go and rewatch the game because I'm thinking of one particular play that I started to get really excited about, and it was honestly Des Ritter being flushed out of the pocket. Right. Des Ritter has typically this season, I don't know at whose bequest, whether it's his insistence on being a pass, a, a, a pocket quarterback or Denbrock or who, but he got outside the pocket and stuff opened up. He got a little bit of extra time that he needed. And ultimately, I don't, I don't remember if we made the, if he, if, if the catch was incomplete or not, but all I kept thinking to myself is, why aren't we doing that more? Why aren't we getting Des? to create his own, like we have this amazing athlete, this guy with these amazing ability to run, evade tackles, evade sacks. And we're just leaving him sitting in the pocket to get sacked instead of trying to get in the rolling out into the pocket. Um, That part, that was what was frustrating to me is that we had all this talent. We weren't, we weren't using it because we knew going into this game that the beat Alabama, we weren't going to do it up front with, with the run game, but as good as Jerome Ford is, you know, it it just, it is what it is. We're going to have to go over the top. And we never really gave Des the opportunity or the time to do that. And I know a lot of that's the, the, the fault of the, the offensive line. It's not being able to – losing that battle in the trenches. But, man, design some play, – get some plays out there. Like get Des Ritter out into the space. Let him, let him get outside the pocket. You know, let him use his legs to create an extra level of uncertainty on the, on the other side of the ball for the defense. It seemed to me that, that Fickle and Denbrock – and I, I'm kind of pairing them because, you know, Fickle – Denbrock is running the offense – but at the end of the day, this is Fickle's team, and I'm going to put him sort of at the helm in terms of what's happening on the field. Um, they seem convinced 
based on our game plan and based on the style of plays we called, they seem convinced that our offensive line wasn't going to hold up against Will Anderson and that Alabama defensive front. Everything was short. And there were times in this game where you, it did seem to me like if Des Ritter was dropping back more than three steps, he was going to be running for his life and, and taking a loss in terms of a sack. We did at times struggle to provide Des the protection he needed, but at the same, on the other side of the coin, there weren't a lot of opportunities to really evaluate that because everything was short. There were a lot of quick passes to Tyler Scott. Um, you know, Alec Pierce did not get a lot of action in this game. The tight ends were not u- utilized nearly as much as maybe we would have expected going into the game and, and going into it, knowing that one of Alabama's defense's weaknesses seemed to be, uh, they were a bit soft against tight ends this season, but we really never seriously threatened or challenged that Alabama that beat up Alabama secondary. There were no deep threats. We were not taking shots downfield. And so I don't know if that's a matter of more so the offensive line, not being able to provide the protection or just a hyper conservative game plan, but all in all, it was extremely ineffective over the course of the game. Like I said, two drives that looked coherent that did not get put into the end zone, but the rest of them were very, very lackluster. Going into halftime, we get Alabama on on the deep pass with with time kind of running out in the in the in the half right after the muff punt, uh, where they go up 17-3. We score a field goal in the third quarter. We make it 17-6. This game was close. I do think the game plan was to be conservative and rely on the defense to keep you in the ball game. And the defense did do that. I know Alabama put up 27 points, but as someone astutely pointed out. Alabama's been in the playoff, I think, every single year uh, for the past since like 2018, 17, 16. That was the lowest that Alabama had been held point-wise since 2018. If you go look at what they did this year on their schedule, you know, there's a lot of games that they they still put up a lot of points. Uh, Auburn was 24, LSU was 20. Everybody else, they scored over 30 points in every single game. Like they scored, a, they score a lot of points in their games. We held that offense to 27, 27 points. We only had a clock difference of about seven minutes, which is a you know depending on how often we're 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 moving the ball, two possessions, right? They were able to run a lot more of those run plays, but I think the defense held up and did their job. I truly think that when it came down to it, we did have chances to win this ball game. You have the drop touchdown by Alec Pierce. You have the the fumble and look. Is it if if you muff a punt, is it guaranteed you're going to get it back? No. Do I blame them for not getting a, a muff punt? No. But if you get that, those are two two things right there that change the tide of this game and maybe puts the pressure on Alabama a little bit more. That oh shoot. And I don't think Nick Saban was lying when he said Cincinnati gave us all we could handle because we held them to 27 points. We we made them one dimensional. We held the Heisman winning quarterback to just so. To just under 181 yards in the air, the guy who averages 300 plus in the air. See, but I don't. I don't look at it necessarily as we held them to that. They came in intent on bashing our faces in with the run game. You could see it from the very first drive of the game. They scored a touchdown on 11 plays, and it was Robinson Jr. run for six yards. Robinson Jr. three yards. Robinson Jr. five yards. Robinson Jr. seven yards. Bryce Young run one yard, 
Then you got a Jamison Williams run for 18 yards. Brian Robinson Jr. for nine yards. Robinson Jr. seven yards. You see, you catch the theme here. They came into this game on that first drive to say, can you stop our run game? Can you stop us from picking up five to six yards every single time we hand the ball off? And we did prove we didn't have an answer for that. We did not have a defensive front that was able to hold up against Alabama in their running game. And the problem with that, and and look, the offense was the major issue in this game, clearly. You can't get around the fact that the failure to score touchdowns against, you know, a weaker-than-average Alabama defense was the downfall of the Bearcats in this game. That falls on Denbrock. That falls on on Ritter. But I put it primarily in the hands of, of Mike Denbrock. Um, I, I At the same time, by allowing Alabama to just run the ball and move the ball in that fashion throughout the game, it did take away the biggest advantage we have as a defense, which is how aggressive and how playmaky our defensive backs are. They're going to get their hands on balls. They're going to intercept some passes. They're going to make some chaos happen and potentially pose a threat to take it to the house the other way if we force teams into playing into our defensive strength. And so it felt like we didn't necessarily dictate that. We allowed them to do the running. It it led to fewer possessions in the game overall. But like you said, like if you would have told me going into the game that we held Alabama to 27 points as a raw total, that number, if you just circle 27, that is acceptable, (laughs) especially when you consider the numbers you, you mentioned before, which is Alabama in the college football playoff semifinals never gets held to 27 points. So you're right. That in itself was okay. It did feel like they were imposing their will on our defense, though, just in a way that that it, it was the same way that that was the weakest stretch of our season against Tulsa, Tulane, et cetera, where teams were running on us. This happened just at a much greater level in the form of, of Alabama's running game that went for over 300 yards. There's a, a point in this game where in the, in the fourth quarter, there's – 13 minutes and 53 seconds. I'm being facetious here with this number because at that point, the game was an 11 point game. This by no means was a blow. That's what I'm saying. We had opportunities to win this game. We didn't capitalize on scoring touchdowns at times with drop passes. Now there, there were some things we've, we said this from the beginning, we were going to have to play a perfect game. And I don't, I don't think you'll disagree with that, but I, I think when we look back at the season as a whole, you know, Nick Saban had a month to prepare for this game. Guarantee you he watched Navy. Guarantee he went and watched Tulsa. Guarantee he went in and, and watched Tulane. All these teams that decided they were just going to run the ball against us. And I think we said this. If you go back and listen to the tape, I think I said this or you said this. I'm scared for the time when we get to play a team that has a stud of a running back, and all they're going to do is run the ball over us, and that's how they're going to win the game is by keeping it away from us. The cool thing, and this isn't cool in the sense of what happened to us, but it's, it does give me an, an, a deeper and truer appreciation of Nick Saban, which is the fact that this is, this is a team that got off all season throwing the ball all over the field. They just beat Georgia, this vaunted defense that, could, that stopped everybody, was giving up you know, hardly any points in the second half uh, for, the, for the entire season, and they threw it all over them, and they scored 41 points on them in, in the SEC championship game. And they came into this game against Cincinnati with absolutely zero ego about getting Bryce Young 
Heisman Trophy type stats in the college football playoff. He looked at it and they said, okay, we can choose to throw the ball against Sauce Gardner, Kobe Bryant, Brian Cook, and this secondary that has proven themselves to be incredibly opportunistic. They love defending the pass. Or we can take our beefy-ass offensive lineman. We can take this, this senior running back who's hung around, who's who's been solid, but we, we know he can be even better than he's, than he's shown this season in Brian Robinson Jr. Still finished the year, by the way, with like 1,200 yards, 14 touchdowns. And we're going to be so disciplined in not taking unnecessary risks. If we think we can pick up five, six yards a pop, move down the field in, in 12 to 14 dry plays, we're going to do that. And we're never going to feel pressured to, to open things up unless Cincinnati makes us do that with how they perform offensively. And that's where we, as an offense, completely failed our defense. Because the offense was unable to put any pressure on Alabama's defense during the entire game, it, it allowed Alabama to continue to just mash us with their running game. And, and it kind of, it did take sort of like the, the enthusiasm and energy and, and hype out of our fan base. I felt like in the stadium, you could sort of like first quarter, we're hyped, we're energetic. Travis Kelsey's on the board. We're all doing the, the down the drive. It sounds incredible. Everybody's into it. Even through halftime, well, look, it's you know it's a 17-3 deficit, uh, but we're very much still in the game with a few stops in the second half. Man, that fourth quarter just felt depressing. Once, even after the defense performed mightily in the third quarter, you get to the fourth quarter and this team is just drumming our skulls in with Brian Robinson's junior, you know, Brian Robinson Jr.'s uh, incredibly you know, powerful legs. And you're just, you know, you kind of put your, put up your hands and say, well, what can we do? Look at our offense. Isn't gonna, isn't matching it. I mean, uh, you're hitting it. I mean, look at what the defense did in the first, even in the first, first quarter. Yeah. They give up the touchdown. We come down and score a field goal. Kind of an answer. They give up field goal. We punt Alabama punts. We force to miss field goal. Then we fumble. <laughs> the fumble uh but touchdown right and then we give it up for, for on on downs on downs like the, the so you're looking at us field goal punt punt fumble turnover on downs come back in the third second quarter field goal we punt punt downs downs just it was it was atrocious in that in the way we weren't able to move the ball and i know we were talking about you know wanting to put it on denbrock too but you know Ritter came out of 17 and 32. You know, Dez's accuracy on some of those short throws also wasn't there. And and I and, and also with the batted down, I think they had three batted down passes at the line of scrimmage. Well, that's and the it, one that's the one to talk about because what the first one that was batted down was on that first drive before Alec Pierce's third down drop in the end zone, which would have been a very, very difficult catch, but it's one that Pierce has made in the past. He doesn't make this incredibly difficult catch. The one before it was a pass where or a route where Pierce was running free in the middle of the end zone. And all Des has to do is get the ball to him and it's a touchdown and it gets batted down at the line of scrimmage, which was foreshadowing of what was to come, which is these critical second, third down plays where we actually run a play that appears to be ready to work and it gets batted down at the line of scrimmage. I, I'd love to hear more analysis on like who that is, right? Because the defensive linemen on Alabama are a completely different breed 
than what we've seen throughout the season. Like these are guys who are six, three, six, four, huge humans, but also incredibly, you know, uh, nimble, athletic, getting off their feet quickly. And they also seem to have scouted us perfectly. They seemed completely prepared for Cincinnati to run short plays, short passing patterns, knowing that, hey, you're not going to get to Dez on every single passing down. But if you don't, get your hands up and let's knock these balls down. And they did exactly that. And I do wonder if that's if that's an opportunity for growth as Dez goes into the NFL. You know, those those types of defensive linemen are every every week. That's who you're seeing week in, week out. You have to find ways to complete passes beyond them. And it's not like Dez is some small guy. This is a big, hulking human being. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Alabama's been in six of these playoffs. There, there is a reason, right? We, there is a reason they were ranked number one. I guess what I'm taking away from this is I'm, I am not embarrassed by the score. I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form should we as a fan base be embarrassed by the effort that we put up there. The fourth quarter, the game got away with us. They put us away. They did what they were supposed to do, and they put us away in the fourth quarter. We were hanging around in that game. One touchdown, and that's a different ball game when you're down four versus 11. You know, it's a, just a different mindset when you're only one score away. All of a sudden you score 10, they put the ball, ball games out of reach. You know, that's kind of that deflating mentality you're talking about. I'm proud of the effort that our boys put up there. I'm, I'm actually on the, on team defense. I think they did what they had to do and held them to a manageable score. They didn't put up 41 points against us. They put up 27, right? Georgia, the best quote unquote, best defense in the land got lit up for 41 points. We kept them out of the end zone for the most part. Most of the game, we kept them out of the end zone. Yep. No, you're Our making, only thing we didn't do is get into the end zone. You're making a really good point. It's the defensive performance actually was better than advertised because of the fact that by the end of it, Alabama sort of just like literally running it up at the end um, because our offense did not counterpunch. We had zero counterpunch in this game. Um, we got to attend this game. Not, I mean, we weren't sitting next to them, but we were with a group of guys who went down to Dallas, a few friends who met up with us there who lived in Arkansas, uh, who didn't necessarily have a dog in the fight. You know, they follow our podcast, and so they've kind of adopted Cincinnati as their team. But they're not, you know, alumni. They don't have they don't have a vested interest in the university in terms of uh, a rooting interest or a cheering interest beyond seeing our personal happiness, which I'm, I'm sure they would have loved to see Cincinnati pull out the win for that reason. But as they watched the game, one of them made the, made the comment to me, and I thought this was so perfect. Um, the fan base of Cincinnati, he said it didn't feel like a normal Cincinnati crowd. And I know exactly what he's talking about there. The history of Cincinnati sports is such that in big games, we tend to have tight buttholes when it comes to these, these big moments. Our fan base is sort of, we tense up. We, we, we're uncertain up of ourselves. And up, <laughs> up 22 in a NCAA game, and people are wondering why you're... Uh... You're tense. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Like we we always are waiting for the other shoe to drop, and we have this overarching like dark cloud over us when we're cheering for for our favorite teams in the biggest games and the biggest moments. The fan base did not feel like this in the college football playoff game. This this fan base felt wild, free, crazy, like they believe, like they are ready to do the unthinkable. And so you've you've got the fan base who showed up. In, in ten, with tens of thousands of people with big, thick energy abound. And on the other side of the coin, 
the offense played the complete opposite game. They played, they, they had a game script and a strategy and, and, a, and an approach that felt to be the opposite of what our fan base was bringing to the table. And, and I thought that hit the nail on the head. Like I felt like the game plan we brought forth against Alabama was a bit soft. It was a bit, it wasn't ambitious. It wasn't bold. There were no trick plays. We didn't come with an approach that said, hey, we're probably going to have a chance to beat Alabama maybe one out of 10 times. And to make this that one time, to overcome the talent discrepancy, to overcome the, the athletic department budgets, to overcome all of the odds that are stacked against us, to over, overcome beating this legendary college football coach who will probably go down as, as the greatest of all time, you've got to do, you've got to pull out all the stops. And it felt like we just came in with this incredibly tepid, soft, almost cowardly game plan on offense. And it was disappointing. And, and his comment was that he felt like it kind of sucked the energy out of us uh, as the game went on. And I, I look, I, I actually agree with it wholeheartedly. When you reflect on it and you think about how we tried to dissect Alabama, you're not going to beat Alabama with three, four, five-yard plays. You're not going to beat them without going down the field and finding the, the big play opportunities. That's how teams have had success beating them historically is with big plays and courageous play calling. And we just didn't get it from Den Brock and Fickle. And, it, and it's disappointing. Like, I, it felt like in that moment, we deserved a more aggressive, a more balls-to-the-wall approach from our coaching staff. It's almost like the game plan was business as usual. This is, this is only Alabama, business as usual. We're just going to go in there and do what we always do, which is run the ball up the middle, throw these big plays. But the only thing we're going to do different here is we're going to, we're going to, and this is reminiscent of, I don't know if people remember this game or if you remember this game, uh, Butch Jones takes over the job and we have a big game at Tennessee. We're pumped. Tennessee's not, I don't even remember if they were especially good that year, but you're still, you're going in the play in, in Tennessee, you know, the historic, whatever the heck their stadium's called. And we go in there and just lay the absolute biggest egg because we're being so conservative. Like you're there, you're playing, you're playing afraid to get killed. You're, you're playing afraid to get smashed. It's Bingo. almost like we gave too much reverence on the offensive side of the ball to Alabama where defense, I think we were confident. I think we were confident in what we were going to do with it, our scheme. It was, bend, it was bend, but don't break. It was basically like, we're going to bend. We're going to do our best to not break. And, and for the most part, we did that throughout the game and we matched it with, with the game plan on offense that, that, that felt a little bit like, let's not get blown out. It, it did Hummer. And that's disappointing because I would rather see us come in aggressive, pulling out every single trick that we've got in the book, leaving nothing on the table, get, giving Des an opportunity to win the damn game with his arm. I thought Chris Bain's article hit the nail on the head going into that matchup. We have to let Des Ritter win this game with his arm. He has a talented arm. It's not always perfectly accurate, but for the most part, he can make big plays. And man, we just did not give him the opportunity to do so. And, and I know that there are some built-in challenges to allow us to play that style. Like you can always counter and say, well, how are you going to block Will Anderson, you know, play in, play out when Des Ritter's dropping back five, seven steps. Maybe we can't even block him. Okay. Figure that out though. Like there, 
other teams have figured out ways to challenge Alabama downfield and put up points on this team. This was not a historically great Alabama defense. And we treated it as if it was, you know, this, we treated them like 2020 Alabama. This wasn't, this was a team that could be scored on. Uh, I don't even think it's necessarily treating them like 2020 Alabama. It's just we, we treated them as, as the gods of football and how dare you try to try to do anything outside the ordinary of traditional football I said this before, like what if Des breaks outside of the, the tackle box there and breaks the pocket and extends some plays more with his legs and guys can get open downfield. Never saw any of any of that kind of stuff. Like no, none of it. And that that's the part that was disappointing. You met, you hit that right there. We didn't give Des a chance to be Des. Agreed. I mean, that's to me, we kind of we're talking through it here and I feel like we kind of found it, found it at the end of this conversation, which is if, if I'm walking away with any regrets in this game, it just feels like, I don't think we put our best foot forward from a execution, not, not from an execution standpoint, but from a, from a game plan standpoint, we didn't do and play with the type of the type of um, approach that would have been necessary to, to pull that upset off, to make history happen. And, and it feels like we, we need to expect bigger and bolder in those moments in the future. And I hope that whoever is taking over for Mike Dembrock, Gino Gadouli, um, I want to see <laughs> Gino, definitely Gino guys. Def- There's Gino, no one else. Gino, Gino. Gino. I, I want to see if he's not, more- well, I'll, I'm willing to eat the egg. That'll be on my face. If it's not Gino Gadouli, but I'm pretty confident. No sources. That's going to be Gino Gadouli. I mean, look, Justin Williams, who is dialed into the program and does have connections, writes an article about Denbrock's departure. And the fact that Denbrock is not an abject failure, I will push back on, on the overarching theme that he's this inept coordinator. He's not. He is someone who has had a ton of success recruiting. He's been a great tight ends coach. We've historically been a great tight end school, especially in the last several years. Um, play calling, you could obviously nitpick. He's been... He's been average at best from a play calling standpoint. Um, but there is an opportunity here to get a fresh face, fresh eyes, fresh mentality in the program. And it coincides with a, with a brand new quarterback. Um, it does, you know, everything, everything we're here hearing behind the scenes is that, you know, Ben Bryant is going to be a Bearcat next season. He's going to come home, finish out his career in Cincinnati. Evan Prater is obviously waiting in the wings, this talented um, hyper athletic quarterback. There's going to be a lot of fun toys for the new coordinator to play with. And, and, you know, we're not going to bank on making the college football playoff year in, year out. So you don't know you're going to have this specific type of game to play, but there's going to be big matchups in the future. We're going to go down to Arkansas and open up the season on the road next year. I'm hoping that the coordinator that steps into this place knows and, and is willing to embrace the moment to say, Hey, there are games that call for above and beyond that call for every single ounce of creativity and boldness uh, rather than just doing the status quo, as you described it. We can't, you can't just go with the status quo when you are facing a true talent deficiency, which was the case against Alabama. Well, we're, we're, we're starting to go in circles there, but I think we're getting ready to, to sound like we're, we're going to get a good transition here because we talk about Gina Godoy. You've mentioned the fact that we got Evan Prater coming, you know, hopefully, hopefully taking over the reins in a little competition with Ben Bryant. Who else do we know 
is is leaving. I feel like the list we we got a lot. We had a lot of seniors on this team. Is it going to be easier to say who's staying, who's going to be making an impact, or is it going to be harder to go through and say who's leaving this year? Well, I, I think there are some decisions that still linger out there because of the fact that COVID years still exist. So there are some guys who could theoretically come back for another season. But we do know that Jerome Ford is is entering his name into the NFL draft. Sauce Gardner has officially done so as well. Um, and those Go get are paid, t- guys. Go get paid. <laughs> yeah, and in Sauce's case, you know, that's going to be a first-round pick and, and possibly a first half of the draft, first half of the first round. I've, I've been seeing some draft mock drafts. I get him in the top 10. It's insane, and he deserves it. And if Go I were- into the bottom half, come to Cincinnati, let's get some applesauce. <laughs> God, can you imagine him ending up in, with the Cincinnati Bengals? I saw oh I saw God. people making the making the joke though that um, it's going to be hard for him to expect him to slide down to pick number thirty two, which is where the Super Bowl winning team picks. So uh, can't really bank on that. I think we can this year, baby. I think we can. Joey Burrow bringing the moxie. <laughs> so I think what we do is we kind of wait for the, the dust to settle a bit. I'm assuming Des, you know, Des will officially announce here in the coming days. Um, there are some other guys who could potentially return. Let's just monitor the situation and then, you know, probably get our buddy Joe Barnett back on the podcast and start, start theorizing out who's, who's going to be filling in for these guys. Luke fickle wrote a nice note and more than nice. I mean, it was, it was a very, it was, it was a detailed message about what sauce Gardner meant to him personally, thanking him and his family for, for all the time, energy, and, and just, blood, sweat, and tears he put into the Cincinnati Bearcats football program. But one point he, one little mention in that note was that sauce and his, and his unbelievable abilities as a cornerback allowed the defense to do things that it wouldn't otherwise be able to do without a cornerback that literally shuts down half the field. And so a fun challenge to kind of look for next year is that you lose that luxury of having one side of the field absolutely shut down to the point where you can run corner blitzes with regular success because quarterbacks don't even look over there. That is gone next year. And also Kobe Bryant will be gone as well. Another very above average cornerback. In fact, a man who won the Jim Thorpe award himself as best cornerback in the nation. So it's going to be a huge transition year uh, going into next season went from a quarterback position, defensive standpoint i mean you're going to see a lot of turnover but that does make it in my opinion like that much more exciting to start figuring out where the where the new producers and uh you know contributors are going to come from i we also have to make mention that Deshaun pace's brother officially committed to cincinnati as well transferring from miami uh and and you watch his highlights and he'll get you excited he's i'm describing him as a little cannonball with uh with arms and legs he is ferocious as a tackler yeah, I mean, it's going to be fun because this this is what this is what I'm wanting. Like, if 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 uh, if you're correct in your hypothesis that you know Ohio State doesn't doesn't even want Fickle, great guys don't want him. Uh, we know he's not leaving for Michigan. We're gonna see the first head coach at the University of Cincinnati in a long time since since the Rick Minter days of turning over his own recruiting class. Like we're going to see him basically kind of quote unquote starting over from scratch. And I'm excited about it because I'm not expecting some foreign, you know, four and eight season next year. I'm coming back and expecting the Bearcats to be, you know, if not 13 and 0 again, 12 and one, 
11 and or 11 and two. Like I have, I still have high expectations for this squad because I know that the talent that we've been recruiting and the guys that we've had in there developing this talent and the belief in, in big thick energy. And if anything in the offense could even be better because we're not going to have small den dick energy, right? We're going to have some, we're going to have some big, big Gino Gadulli energy coming in here. And he's going to, it's going to be fantastic. Or we're, we're not losing that much on offense. I mean, we are losing. I think Alec Pierce is easy. Like say, we don't know COVID years, but if this is his year to go to the NFL, he, he could be gone. Michael Young Jr. Gone. Des Ritter gone. Lenny Taylor could be gone. Uh, you know, but going, Lenny, going Lenny down. Taylor, Lenny Taylor is one that's floating around as a guy who could potentially take advantage of that COVID year. And, and Josh I would Wiley, love it. Josh Wiley is a big TBD as well. So there, there's some potential return. Josh Wiley is still a junior. So unless he has some real like NFL draft stock, he's a junior. So, you know, I'm going to pencil him in as coming back as of right now. There could be more cohesiveness from the offensive line than you would expect. Uh, yes. There, there are, I think, four out of the five guys on the line could be back next season, which would – you can't help but think that's going to help from in, in terms of their productivity and their cohesiveness. So that's something that will be interesting to monitor as well. I want to kind of save that conversation, though, in the roster overhaul and the, and the transition we expect into next season – I love the fact that you're already putting it out there that 12 and one, 13 and zero. Uh, why not again? Despite all the names, which I will, I, I will say this. If the Bearcats go 13 and zero, I honestly, unless there's another crazy year like this year, I actually do not think they will put us in at 13 and zero next year. <laughs> I, I think, I, will, will, I think, well, that's another argument for another day, but I think they're going to go through and be like, you know, well, they lost so many. It's not the same team as last year's. Well, no, no shit. It's college football. If Alabama never has the same team either. I'm less concerned <laughs> about the college football playoff, and I'd rather I'd rather have you let it be known now that if the Bearcats go 13-0 again, undefeated in the regular season, win the conference championship game, that you will get fickle tattooed on your lower back. Why you should be getting? I'm the one who got that. Who said it before? You know the way too early predictions for next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of speaking of high expectations, um, let's let's talk a little basketball here before we hop off. Um, <laughs> I did not get a chance to watch the Tulane game live, but I did watch it uh, last night, which would have been Monday night. I uh, had a chance to kind of turn it on and see what the hell happened because I was monitoring the box score from afar and quickly realized, you know, you know what I can go ahead and, and stop paying attention to this and move on and keep, keep enjoying my night of ping pong drinking and, and whatever else led things, things went to that night. Um, that was a bad, bad loss. Hummer. That was a very, very bad loss at home to a two lane team that has a losing record on the season. I'm surprised they didn't put out a podcast about that. Um, <laughs> it was awful. Um, this this Bearcat team, for how good the the defense can be at times, it hasn't been very good. Oh, I I guess I can't really say it hasn't been very good. It has been good. The defense has been really good. The offense is non-existent. Like it's probably maybe one of the worst offensive teams we've had in the last twenty years. 
I have a hard time believing it could. It isn't. This all there is no offense. I think that's what's frustrating to me is coming into the season, the roster is built to be better defensively than offensively. Now, I would say defensively, they are underachieving. It's not an impose your will type defense that makes teams uncomfortable. When a team like Tulane can settle in and drop 48 points on you in the first half, you're doing something wrong. The energy's not there. The effort's not there. You know, there's plays where I think this play actually happened in the second half, but Abdullah Du is is in position to grab a defensive rebound. The lead, I think, is at 13 for Tulane at this point, but there's about eight minutes left in the game. Bearcats have put together a few scores in a row, and he just he doesn't get his hand on it. And Tulane gets the ball, drives in, gets fouled, and there's more points to extend the lead and, and kind of change momentum in the game. But offensively, there is just not a clear plan of attack. And this is this has been the concern since the get-go uh, with Wes Miller and his staff. It was so clear what his vision was defensively and the style of play he likes and the fact that it does start with defense and it does start with rebounding. And I agree, it does start on those things. And we do need to get great defense and great rebounding in order to, to get the type of Bearcat basketball that we're accustomed to. I know what it looks like last season when we give up a layup line. I didn't enjoy it. I don't want to go back to that. But we do have to have some sort of plan of attack offensively to try and generate some offense. This team is just jacking shots on them. The offense is, is essentially uh, moving around the wing, one or two passes. Okay, Jeremiah's, uh, you know, at the, at the, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for for that three-point shot that he loves? Not, it's off-center, essentially. And, and he's just hoisting and, it, and it's not in a rhythm and it's, and he's making some of them, but he's missing a lot of them too. And David DeJulius is settling for isolation, step back, jump shots. And, and there's not any sort of system to generate good looks for guys. We do have shooters like, you know, theoretical shooters like Mason Madsen who could knock down an outside shot like Hayden Koval, but we're not running sort of any sort of actions that would get them open looks and accentuate their fortes. So I just, we're going to get more into basketball here as the football season winds down. That was incredibly frustrating to watch. That was a brutal, brutal game, especially when you consider you lose by eight at home to Tulane and you held them to 20 points in the second half. I love the, I love the anger. I love the intensity. So Jeremiah Davenport is 25 for 79 on the season, shooting the 30, 31, 32, if you want to round up, percent. Mike Saunders Jr., 12 for 31, 387. As of right now, he has a sample size large enough to be considered the only viable three-point shooter that we actually have on the team. Hayden Koval doesn't get enough looks. He shot 16 on the season. He shoots about 31%. David DeJulius shoots so many threes and at times is the only offensive like producer on this team but he shoots 24% from the outside. Like that's not sustainable. We miss, we, we shoot these shots and we, we miss them. They're not, we're not getting good. Like you, you hit the nail on the head there. We don't get good looks. Like what is something that they, like what does West need to do in order to help these guys get better looks or just get better shots? I mean, it's, it sounds like a joke, but what's the system? <laughs> <laughs> like do we I, did anybody did someone forget the cd did we forget the cd the cd rom do we need to get a do we need to get a drive in here we need to upload it 
David DeJulius struggled shooting the ball last season, but he also averaged like four and a half rebounds, nearly five rebounds, and nearly five assists a game. He was someone who was the the head of the snake. He was the point of attack for the Bearcats, was breaking down the defense, setting up teammates. He this season is shooting for, under 40% uh, from the field. Like you just mentioned, I think he's shooting you know, roughly... He's shooting, he shooting? he's shooting 47 from the field. No, I'm, I'm showing him shooting 39.9% from field goal percentage, 25.4% from three. Um, but his assists are down to two again. Are you on Kempom? No, I'm on, I'm on just general stats. It doesn't no. matter. It doesn't matter. His shooting, his shooting it, <laughs> tomato tomatoes. It's, it's trash. <laughs> well, his, his, his shooting percentages are down, but he's doing way less creating and, and kind of being the point of attack for the, for the offense. And that's because Mike, Micah Adams woods has been shifted to point guard. We've lost some of the creativity on offense in making David DeJulius the scoring threat that he really isn't. When you consider how he shoots, he shouldn't be a primary scoring option. He should be someone that is better utilized creating and, and assisting for others, which is what we saw last season. So the shooting percentages are, are basically identical to what they were last year just with a higher usage percentage, a higher usage rate, and, and a lower focus on creating for others. And, and unfortunately for DeJulius, there's not a lot of guys on this team besides him who have the ability of setting up their teammates. So, look, there's I, I certainly don't want to beat a dead horse here. Um, the other thing to maybe question, and, and the last game against Tulane was interesting in that it was the first time all year the substitution changed pretty dramatically. Um, a lot of guys got action, but if you look at the starting lineup, Newman, Davenport, Adams, Woods, and DeJulius, those four all played 29 minutes or more, which means he's starting to concentrate minutes with the players that he trusts. But to me, the problem with that is it's not, in, that doesn't include Mike Saunders Jr. Who outs, I mean, he had a very, very rough shooting game against Tulane but he's been one of the more dynamic players for the team all season. And, and Victor Locken's still only getting about 13 minutes a game. And, and I don't understand it when you look at his activity. Maybe it could be the turnovers. Maybe it's the foul rate. Look, the guy is talented, and we need to find a way to harness that because unlocking Locken's skill set changes the, dyna the dynamic and outlook of our team. This team has to find a way. Wes Miller has to find a way to get this team better looks consistently. Every single game we play at this point, the other, other team is attacking our defense more effectively than we're attacking theirs. We might win the game sometimes because of, because of talent, and that's been the case largely in non-conference, but we're heading into a schedule that two lanes, the two lanes of the world, if you give them decent looks, and let's face it, some of the shooting in that first half was absurd. Some of those shots we're like step back three pointers in the face of people. And, and that won't be repeatable, but if you continually give up better looks than you get, we're going to lose a lot of games. So it has to turn around quickly because the schedule is going to get much, much, much more difficult than Tulane. Yeah. I mean, we're coming right back against a decent SMU team at home, you know, Memphis, when you're playing games like Tulane, East Carolina, Tulsa temple, East Carolina, those are the games that you, you, you can't take them for granted because those are the games you're going to need to get the 2021 20, wins. And right, right now with some of these games that we've dropped Monmouth and Tulane being the ones that stick out here, 
I'm not going to fault the guys for dropping Arkansas. I begrudgingly going to say I'm not going to blame the guys for dropping Xavier at Xavier. But those are two games that you can't afford to drop the ball on when you're trying to get to that 21, 22, 23 game mark and be on the bubble or be getting yourself solidly into the NCAA tournament at the end of the year. You know, that's, that's a tough one. That, that's a tough pill to swallow. So, you know, our schedule doesn't get easier. It, it really, it, in a sense, there's going to be some, some crap teams on here. South Florida is atrocious, but for the most part, it's going to be a solid schedule. Yeah, it is. And, and look, I, there are people who are listening to this podcast and saying, dudes, it's Wes Miller's first season with the Bearcats. The roster went over, went, went through a big transition. We lost Tari Eason. We, we gained several players from multiple schools. And because of that, there's going to be a learning curve. Here's the problem with that mentality. And here's the problem in, in terms of how it doesn't mesh with what we're seeing on the court. The team is not getting better. And when you have a new coach, we don't necessarily have to attach making the tournament for this to be a successful season. I'm willing to get down with, okay, the team fought, fought hard, got to like 19, 20 wins, 18, 19 wins, and continuously improved throughout the season. We saw flashes of what Wes Miller really wants this program to be. At this point, we have really seen one flash the entire season, and that was the Illinois game. It was an outburst where they scored against a, against a very good team in Illinois and managed to just completely thwart them defensively. Since that game, and I would say Arkansas was a pretty solid performance too, obviously. Since those two games, the team has not been able to show any sign of true improvement. And when you have a new coach, yes, there's a long leash. Yes, he needs to have time to get his own guys in here. But we also want to see flashes of what he can do from a coaching standpoint. And at this point, too much of what Wes Miller has done well so far has been all of the off-the-court stuff and not enough of the on-the-court on stuff. We need to see better results on the court in terms of how this team is playing and how they're playing together and playing the style of basketball that can actually lead to winning games in conference play. Bring the fire. Bring the fire hydrant. Coomer is on fire, baby. Now, I, one thing to take away from everybody listening, we are in no way, shape, or form don't calling even say for... It. No, don't even say not, it. Stop. You, see, you yeah, don't even have to gonna say stop. that. We're going to stop. Stop, because we, hang on. We don't hang have on. To. No, that, that bothers me. It bothers me. It interprets any sort of criticism as though you're calling for some sweeping change. That's what Cincinnati nobody's fans saying do. That. No, that's nobody's fucking saying that, though. That's what Cincinnati we're just fans saying, do, though. Play better, coach better. That's all we're saying. Nobody's going to interpret it any other way. Nobody's going to interpret it any other way. Oh, they could. Bothers me. You're looking at the, you're talking about how we started off with some of these good games. Evansville, 246 in Kempom. Georgia, 216 in Kempom. Alabama, AM, 321 in Kempom. Presbyterian, 274 in Kempom. Like, yeah, those are shit teams. We should be beating them by 20, 22 points. You should be doing that. Yeah. I've like hundred percent Illinois. They didn't have their best player. And we were, we were on, honestly, they did have out. their best player. That's right. He was his first game back. First game back that we, we were lights out Arkansas. We did play great, but then we came back against a Monmouth. Who's still a decent team. They're in the, no, they're over played, the top we half. Played, we played horror. That was the first sign of like, Whoa, our offense has no plan of attack. That was the right. first red flag of our offense has no clue. 
Right. But those first four games, it was kind of like the, the very first game under JB when we played St. Thomas more and we scored like 106 points and the offense looked like gods. Like, yeah, we played four teams that allowed our offense to look really freaking good uh, comparatively to what they've been. And not that and, and we've seen that we're struggling actually against teams that are in the top half of Kempom. We did struggle against we played a good game against Arkansas, but we did struggle against the Monmouth. We did struggle against Miami of Ohio. We did actually destroy a very terrible, like we'd have everybody else in the 200s, Bryant. We did destroy a Florida A&M on the back half of that. Ashland, Asheville. I don't know if you want to, ch- Asheville, if you want to chalk it up to this, we didn't know who it was. No preparation, game day, you know, game day decision. You're coming in there. I don't know, but whatever. Tennessee Tech, like that's when you should have. In our offense, they scored 76. I mean, it's against shitty teams. It's against really bad competition that our offense looks good. So we know when we just tougher, tougher games, it's our offense isn't good. It was Ashland, by the way. You had it right. It was Ashland. But anyway, was we're just it? reading. We're just reading the schedule. Here's the thing. Cheers, buddy. Cheers.